This is Congregation, a podcast I started because I wanted to talk about religion, especially as a young person who's trying to figure out where I belong. I think a lot of us are working through where we fit with our faith and the faith of others. Um, so my name is David Zenman. Uh, I'm a co-host of the Trafe podcast. Um, I also am currently working as a freelance podcast producer and play in a bunch of punk bands. My name is Sam Bick. I am also a co-host of Trafe podcast. That is correct. <laughs> I'm a student at McGill. I'm studying law right now. I am thankfully almost done. Those are the hosts of Trafe a debatably Jewish podcast out of community radio station CKUT in Montreal. Even though both David and Sam grew up Jewish, neither would call themselves religious anymore. Now, they host a podcast that looks at Judaism in an unconventional way. You call your podcast Traif. What does that word mean? Um, so treif in uh, both Hebrew and in Yiddish uh, means not kosher in a very literal way, but it's also used in different ways more generally to sort of talk about things that are not permitted generally. Um, in some contexts, people have used it as a way of talking about queerness uh, in more of like a radical Yiddishist milieu, uh, which already I realize is a very niche thing that we probably have to unpack, but uh, maybe we can do that in a little bit. Yeah, Totally. I don't know why we say this all the time, but it also, the equivalent in Islam would be like haram. Like it's a very, um, it's, those are two fairly interchangeable terms. Oh, that's so interesting. And you also call it debatably Jewish, which <laughs> <laughs> is interesting because are you saying we have debates about Jewish issues or you are poking fun at the fact that it's maybe not totally Jewish. All right. Well, thank you for understanding the layers to that <laughs> to that uh, phrase, because we have encountered at least one uh, publication, a.k.a. the largest English paper in Montreal, who did not get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more the first... It's more the first option that you gave that we're, we're debating and we're hopefully bringing people on where certain ideas come up. Uh, the joke is that certain factions of the institutional Jewish community, those who hold like the power of the institutions and run the community centers, et cetera, might argue that what we're doing is not quote unquote Jewish in a normative way, but we do not see ourselves that way at all. That's interesting. I mean, from the very little I know about Judaism, it is about debate and deciding whether or not something is true and having different interpretations of it. That's that's my very sort of limited uh, understanding, not growing up um, with Jewish culture. But I, I think that's true, is it not? I mean, it's I, I feel like it's definitely something that was present in my upbringing within a, an Orthodox Jewish community. Um, and but I think in but I think, unfortunately, Right now in the in sort of, yeah, the institutional Jewish community in specifically in Canada, but I know also in the United States, uh, we don't see a lot of that debate happening. Things have gotten narrower and narrower politically, um, whereas if you don't conform to a very rigid, mostly right wing understanding of what it means to be Jewish and what the implications of that are, there isn't a lot of space for you. But David, I think it's interesting because the idea of debate is still valorized, right? 
it's still valorized while at the same time the political spectrum is narrowed. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like it's, exactly. it's it's kind of an interesting tension. Like, oh yeah, it's great to debate. One day you'll be a lawyer, but like don't oppose what they're don't oppose what's being taught in school. Don't oppose X person's complete uh support for a nation state um near the Mediterranean, you know? Like <laughs> there's there's a there's a weird duality happening there. David, you mentioned that you grew up Orthodox Jew. Can you explain a little bit what that means and what it meant for your upbringing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, sh- I should specify that I was raised uh, in a faction of Orthodoxy that calls itself modern Orthodox. Um, so it's it's not when, when a lot of people hear Orthodox or outside of the Jewish community think of a very particular thing that's usually actually uh, a Hasidic Jew. That was not my upbringing, although it was sort of uh, very close to that. And there were a lot of uh, a lot of overlaps. Um, but what it meant was that I grew up in a very contained, uh, community that, uh, like for example, I went to my, the high school I went to was not called a high school, it was called yeshiva. And we were there for about like 11 hours a day. Um, it was, it was segregated by gender binary. Um, uh, there, yeah, it was, it was your, your entire life is governed by a very particular understanding of, of how to be Jewish. And... So this was this was the way you were raised. Was it because it was tradition? Was this um, what was the sort of explanation for why you should be following these rules? Oh, I mean, for in, in Orthodox Judaism, the reason that you live that way as an Orthodox Jew is because it is correct. Uh, there there is all these principles of the faith. Um, it's understood that you know the five books of Moses and the oral law and what's called the Talmud, which is sort of. Uh, an attempt at writing down the oral law through this borderline scientific argumentative process uh, that's kind of neat to read, um, that all of this uh, is divinely sourced, uh, that it all comes from a divine being, and there are certain foundational beliefs that are held to be true by Orthodox Jews. And if you don't believe it, there's very little reason to live in that manner. And, and personally, I don't believe it, and so I left. So David, when you were growing up, what did you feel like I am doing the right thing by following these rules that my family and that my faith has set out for me because God wants me to do it? Was that was was that how you felt or? Uh, yeah, I mean, not really. I, 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 I should say that I'm somewhat of an anomaly in my in my experience because my parents are what is called in that community. Like my mom is a Baal Teshuva, which which is the word that's used for someone who is Jewish, but wasn't living an orthodox life and didn't grow up that way um, but decided to come to it um, and so I, my family sort of collectively decided to become orthodox jews once i was maybe three or four years old but before that time you know my parents have liberal politics they're middle class white people and they sent me to adlerian nursery school i don't know if anybody remembers Ad, adlerian the adlerian movement it was sort of like a pop psychology movement in the 80s, early 90s, but it was essentially like, you know, like give your give your kid all the support that that they need, you know, all the encouragement, all the love, you know, it let them decide their own destiny and make their own decisions and be empowered. And then I was taken from that and put into essentially the opposite context uh, for the rest of my schooling. And uh, so I, I never, I, I wasn't the kind of person who was born into the community and believed it from a very early age. I was always a little bit of fish out of water. And as I got older, it just, the contradictions sort of played themselves out, I think. Hmm. So now, what would you say your connection is to Judaism? 
Um, well, my connection to Judaism, the religion, is pretty non-existent. Like, um, but I do have a connection to maybe what I'd refer to as Jewishness, sort of, you know, Jewish history and Jewish culture and Jewish politics. Because something that's embedded within uh, Orthodox Judaism is an understanding that what it means to be Jewish is a very narrow thing. If, if you're living according to the Orthodox regimen, then you are Jewish. And if you're not, then you're not. And that essentially practicing the religion is the only criteria. And, uh, and, and so obviously, aside from all, all this weird stuff around bloodline, which obviously don't buy into and, and conversion, but... Um, there's this whole, there's, there's many other ways to engage with Jewishness. And personally, I do so on the register of history and politics. Um, the thing that really brought me into being able to do that was learning about the history of the, the, the Jewish anarchists in the 1890s and, and onward in, uh, specifically in New York is where I learned about that, but it, you know, all over Europe as well. And in Canada too. Um, and how this was a political movement that animated the majority of, uh, of, of the Jewish of Jewish communities in North America for an extended period of time, and the entire history of this secular Jewish movement as as was more or less wiped out from the con the the context that I grew up in, and so I've been really invested in learning from that and uh, taking a lot of inspiration from it too. But David, I think there's another piece, and I don't know if I'm going to do the best job at explaining it, but when we talk about Jewish life in Eastern Europe before many folks immigrated, um, we're not just talking about a religion in an individual isolated way. Like religion was a collective, religion was day-to-day life, like Judaism was everything. Um, It wasn't just when you, like, I mean, in a narrow sense with Christianity, like going to church once a week, like there's an idea that that religion is your entire life. And so when you imagine creating a culture in North America that might not be religious, there's all those other pieces that are still there. There's all those recipes, there's all the songs, there's the language, right? So there's so much there that continues to exist if you are not practicing, even though it's seemingly contradictory. Yes, I, I think you're right. And that's something growing up Christian that always struck me was that I started to meet people who weren't necessarily religious Jews, but still identified as Jews. And I thought that was really interesting. But then I learned about all the culture, all the familial aspects around it. Um, and Christianity historically, like you said, n- not for everyone. I mean, there definitely are traditions Um, I know for a long time I was really steeped in going to my church, but it seems like with Judaism there are more practices and more than just you you follow this dogma, you have these certain beliefs. Um, It it, it was different in that way. I mean, I see that with a lot of friends who are Muslim, right? Or or like who grew up in that context where it's like you still are participating in holidays and certain kinds of dinners and whatever, but you're not praying every day, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's super duper interesting to me because I think that's what I, so I grew up, um, I grew up going to United Church, which I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with it, but it's a, it's a Christian denomination, but it's very progressive. So there is an understanding, I think, from a lot of people. And if there's a United Church person that 
is angry about this, they can get in touch with me. But I feel like the majority of people in the church understand that the Bible, which is a central text to a lot of people in Christianity, is not meant to be taken in a literal way, and that we're meant to take lessons from it, and that it's actually kind of a radical text, and that Jesus was a sort of radical figure um, who really wanted to turn the world that he saw at the time that he was alive sort of on its head, and it uh, it's, it's taken in a very, uh, almost like a social justice lens, and so that was what I grew up with, but And it was a great community while I was part of it. And there were lots of committees and lots of events I went to. But when I stopped going to church every Sunday and being as immersed, and when I moved away from my family, there wasn't that sense of, okay, well, maybe there's a dinner I can go to. Or there there aren't the same cultural trappings, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I think for me, because of the way that I grew up, it's very difficult for me to feel comfortable negotiating that sort of like 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 doing some of the ritual but not really believing all of it that sort of line that a lot of people find uh with their religions of origin and because for me like and i feel like i i have common cause with you know like the jewish anarchists at least at least as they existed in europe and north america uh when that was a, a movement of note but uh which is that to me, Judaism. Fuego take coming up. That to me, Judaism uh, as a religion is based on lies, like many organized religion. And I understand that in the, today, many people engage with this very old structure in ways that you can get a lot of empowerment from. That can be very positive, but to me, it's very difficult to look past my central critique of it in order to have this like richer cultural experience. What would be your your central critique um, of 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 Judaism as a religion? Mm-hmm. Well, we are going on all these terrible lists, David. Watch out. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, my my problem with Judaism as a religion, again, very colored by my experience growing up with it, is that I, I, like I, I grew up reading the Talmud, for example. Um, that was I, I would spend hours and hours each day just reading the Talmud, and the things that are written in the Talmud very explicitly you know, about how women aren't people, tons of racist stuff. And they believe that demons exist. If you leave flour on the floor, they'll be you'll see like chicken markings because there's these weird chicken demons, just tons of things that are demonstrably not true. And on a more foundational, in a more foundational sense to the religion, the idea that there is an omnipotent creator, that all these books that clearly have diverse authors were all sourced from this one divine creator who knows all and you know, like there, there are all these aspects of the religion that to me I don't think are true yeah I, I think I I can understand that and th- I guess that is a criticism both coming from people who are more literal and people who have discarded these sort of religious texts altogether is that you're you're shopping for uh, things that you like, things that resonate with you, which I will do with a book like the Bible, for example. There's texts, there's parts of the text where I go, okay, I could get on board with that. And there's a lot of really upsetting stuff, especially from the Christian Old Testament that I don't like at all. And so I can go, well, this is, um, 
this was clearly written in a historical time period. I'm not meant to take this as a literal prescription for how to live my life. Sam, you said your upbringing was more secular. Was there any, was there ever a religious element to it? Yeah. Okay. So it's not secular per se. It's still like I went to a a Jewish school, um, but the interpretation is more liberal probably. And the, and I guess the text is taken less literally. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like the way I've described it, it's like less religious, but it's still a religious education. I still learned Hebrew. I still learned Yiddish. I still learned Tanakh, which is the, the Christian old Testament, Testament, Testament. Um, we learned Jewish history. We had a class called traditions. Like we, we, we really spent a lot of time around Jewish identity. Um, and that, and it's, it's the movement that's called conservative Judaism, which is somewhere in the middle of Orthodox on one side and reform on the other. I wonder, I've encountered some people and I feel like there's also been a lot of coverage of this idea, people who want some sort of religious community, but they don't want the religion part of it. They want the ritual. And I feel like, Sam, it sounds like for you that that's something that you you get from Judaism, even if you don't feel that attached to the religious part. A hundred percent. So yeah, I'm still still trying to figure that out. It's super complicated. Like we have these debates all the time. It's not it's not clear. Um, European nationalism and white supremacy has really messed things up. Um, <laughs> like one thing that we haven't really talked about is like Dave and I are both Ashkenaz descended white Jewish people living in North America, and there's a deep and rich history of Jews from North Africa, the Middle East, and other parts of the world. And I think that it's I feel a very strong attachment to Eastern European Jewish identity in a, in a specific way. And on our show, we're really invested in understanding a Judaism where the different Jewish identities inter interact with each other in a, in a like respectful, equal way, um, as opposed to the kind of stereotype of Larry David or Woody Allen kind of being the idea of what Jewish North America is. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're right that that's the prevailing idea of what it means to be a Jew in North America is uh yeah, you just think of Seinfeld. Like. Yeah, and and just to add to that, I think like I have a certain privilege of being able to not be religious and claim Judaism whereas many Jews of color have to fight in Jewish spaces to be recognized as Jewish people, right? Like so I I I recognize that it's way easier for me to just claim Judaism and no one questions or, I mean, most people don't question it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think about that sometimes too, that my perspective on Christianity is as someone who um, has been able to, has been allowed to question whether or not I believe all of the different uh, box, like whether I'm able to check off all of the boxes that are associated with Christianity and when I decided I didn't believe that, I was still allowed to stay. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, and, and this comes up a lot in sort of like uh, the work that we've done in different ways around Palestine, where any Jews who are speaking in opposition to the state of Israel, um, your status as a Jew is immediately questioned. There's like a Jewish authenticity game that goes on, uh, specifically on the Jewish right. I think it happens on the left in a different way. 
Um, and so it's not even just our whiteness that comes into play as the the site of privilege. It's also, I mean, for me specifically, it has to do with gender. You know, I, I, I benefited from a lot of patriarchy growing up in terms of my Jewish education in the Orthodox world. It has to do with the fact that I even had access to that financially. Like there's all these elements that go into it so that I have this card, this Jewish card that I can pull out that allows me to be as vocal as I want to be about Israel without having to succumb to these attacks about my Jewish authenticity. David, you had mentioned the gender binary when you were talking about growing up. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, like in, I think it's, it's you know, it's definitely something that in just living in, in North America, like it's something that I think everybody experiences in different ways, but in the Orthodox world, is particularly pronounced and and what it means to be on one side or the other means you have a certain access to a kind of education. So the education that I had at the school that I went to being understood as a boy and benefiting from patriarchy was that I all day, you know, like for like about 10 hours a day, I was learning things like the Talmud. I, I was learning about Jewish law, Jewish history, having debates and, and having intellectual conversations conversations with my peers and with teachers but my sister's experience was drastically different they had more of an experience that was based around creating an emotional bond with the community and with the state of israel so they didn't have they weren't actually allowed to read the talmud so i i definitely benefited from that structure um because of where i was placed uh on on in that binary and, and are there parts of that binary that you have rejected at all as you've gotten older? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I should say that, like, I am someone who uh, I, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm genderqueer. Like, I don't think it, I, I'm, I know I identify as a boy or a girl or maybe both. But um, it's not a kind of world that I could easily reenter at this point in my life, I think, because of how entrenched that binary is. Um, and I think I'm just lucky that. I got out when I did so that I didn't have to deal with that while I was inside because it's not a particularly good place to deal with those sorts of things. So in Orthodox Judaism, there wasn't. Are there other other strands of Judaism that are more sort of understanding of um, people who don't necessarily identify um, as one gender or the other? My understanding of Reform Judaism is that it is somewhat comparable to how you were describing the United Church. Um, I don't have that much experience with Reform Judaism, but I assume that they are more open. Um, yeah, yeah, and there's a Reconstructionist movement as well, which I know yeah. is like very progressive in that way. Um, but I think there's something also that happens uh, in the institutional Jewish community where organizations, and even, even some of the Orthodox spaces where I grew up, um, there's, there's this interesting political game that goes on where because all these right-wing Jewish institutions that are very religious are very simultaneously committed to the project of the state of Israel is that often they will find themselves in a position where it's actually to their advantage to pay a lot of lip service about being queer friendly or tolerant to uh, not gender not gender nonconforming people or, or people who are transgender or people who are trans um, not because anything has changed in the approach of the Orthodox community or any of these institutions, but because it's advantageous in the rhetorical framework around painting Israel as this sort of like queer utopia 
and the Arab world as this, you know, barbaric landscape. And so it can be confusing. You can hear a lot of language that's quote unquote inclusive from institutions that on the ground are not. And it, and it doesn't seem to me will ever be. So it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult na- landscape to navigate. So besides this podcast where you, you try to encompass a wide variety of voices, are, th- are there, are, are there Jewish traditions, um, that you, either of you get anything from? Definitely. And my understanding is that this probably isn't what you're getting at, but I'll answer it in this way anyway, which is for me, uh, especially because we're participating in, in a Jewish media project, um, institutions like Jewish media institutions of, you know, a hundred years ago, like the Fire British Stimma, which, are, which translates from Yiddish to be the, the free voice of labor, uh, was an anarchist paper that was the same. What was the circulation on it? Okay. It's one year in 1913, I believe they had a circulation of about 150,000. Yeah. It was and, a- and that was at a time where there were also communist papers, democratic socialist papers, and a bunch of religious conservative papers. So there was a, it wasn't like this anarchist Yiddish paper was the only paper available. Yeah. People in more than 150,000 Yiddish speakers purchased it during one year. Yeah. And so, um, it, so it just sort of illustrates the, the, how large this milieu was at a, at a different time. And this was based on New York City. And so the milieu as it existed had its own cultural traditions that they created. It, it was this, it was a, a very explicitly Jewish or even more spe- specifically Yiddish counterculture of you know Eastern European Jews who had migrated uh, to America, and yeah, and they're they're anarchists. They're opposed to capitalism and, and to the state, and to all forms of, of of power and oppression. And the way that they created a cultural milieu and, and world was incredibly inspiring to me. And I feel like those are things that those are traditions that are deeply interesting to me, and and, and that I continue to tap into. And and this project I think is definitely uh, inspired by. And I can give you a more uh, traditional answer concerning <laughs> traditions. Um, I have recently got into the uh, food production game, and I've been making a ton of Eastern European Ashkenaz meals, and I've just had a really good time trying, like, to think thinking about well, first of all, how many beets are involved, but also making that food and thinking about making that food for friends and family, and they're just. I mean, again, uh, it's not huge stuff, but yeah, the food has been meaningful me, for me in the last couple of weeks. And then on a larger level that might open up a whole other door that maybe we're not ready for, but um, I have found that um, religious practices in terms of death and mourning have been really helpful for me. And having gone through several deaths in my family that the some of the ritual even if i'm not entirely on board with uh, some of the content of those rituals have felt very helpful and meaningful to me so if you if you wanted to talk about this what would some of those rituals be so the big one that some people might know about is is the shiva, which for seven days after someone or after the funeral, which usually happens fairly soon after someone dies, people basically gather together, usually in the home of the person who died. And it's kind of like a smothering of obligations and people and food. And it just feels like that is, or for me at that point, even though I'm someone who doesn't love having a ton of people around, 
in those moments, that was a very helpful process. Um, saying the mourners Kaddish, which is like a David, can you give me a give me some uh, backup here? Oh, on like what what is the mourners Kaddish? <laughs> yeah. um, well, the it's something that so I mean after a family member dies in Judaism, um, there are many things that you're supposed to do, and one of them is that for a period of time following the death, um, every day. Um, several times a day, actually, in Orthodox Judaism at least, yeah. uh, you're, you're supposed to find a grouping of at least 10 men. And while they're doing their daily prayers, you do this like call and response prayer with them, where you, and it's a specific thing that only mourners say. Thank you, David. And what I think is helpful in that is there's, there's a way in which, like, I mean, obviously someone dies in your family and it's, it's present in your mind, but like the intentionality of it on a daily basis as someone who doesn't pray all the time, but being in that space and thinking about what has transpired and that person has was and and i feel like if and when it happens again which it likely will um i've i found and i think i will continue to find really helpful in that morning process um can i add can i add another ritual in a totally different register <laughs> of course um it'd be funny if, it'd be funny if you said no <laughs> i don't want to hear about this anymore no of course not. Um, so, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, Sam, which is the Yom Kippur balls. Um, ah. And uh, for, for people who are not uh, Jewish listening, Yom Kippur is often understood as one of the simultaneously the holiest, but also the most solemn day on the Jewish calendar. Um, Explains a lot. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, you, you, it's a fast day. You're not supposed to be washing yourself or look in the mirror and, and, you're, it's, it's tons of praying. There's this metaphor about the book of judgment being closed. Uh, so you have to ask forgiveness from people. It's a, you're, you're in synagogue all day. It's a very intense day. And, um, uh, in the 18, I think it was the 1890s. This started. First one was 1885. Yeah. Uh, they, the Jewish anarchists started a tradition of having what was called a Yom Kippur ball where they would rent out a union hall and have like all have like a Jewish marching band and jazz band and have a huge dance with like hundreds and hundreds of people. And it would all be a fundraiser for like political prisoners or whatever they were working on at the time. And these fist fights would erupt with the Orthodox <laughs> right-wing establishment. It was this whole uh, thing and they'd have it every year. And uh, some friends of ours in the UK uh, called the Judas Collective uh, recently brought it back and they're, they, they did one last year. It had a big, banner that said there is no god on it <laughs> wait the judas collective like the disciple of jesus that no no well i mean it's it's they're it's very t- they're very tongue-in-cheek so if if people can't handle debatably jewish podcast as a joke you're not gonna be able to handle judas they're spelled j-e-w-d-a-s but they're playing off of that oh oh one thousand percent yes so Judas in the Bible was a disciple of Jesus who betrayed him uh, to the Romans and they were and then he was arrested. So Judas is, um, I guess, a, I guess a cultural reference for uh, someone who um, who betrays you kind of thing or someone who is, I guess, even in a more what would be a better way to explain it? Oh, I think I think I think that's that's a really good way, and so it's. It, but part of I think part of the intention of the joke, which is I think minute three of explaining the joke, but uh, is is that, sort of David. Like, that's how all jokes work, right? When you explain them, they <laughs> they become funnier. Um, which is sort of like also a tongue in cheek reference to the persistent accusation about 
the uh, Jewish uh, the, the the Jewish guilt for the death of Jesus. Um, so it's sort of like a joking embrace of that while simultaneously bringing up this. In, anyway, there's, no, a, there's but, a lot going on. No, but David, that's an important thing to focus on, I think, because, I mean, it hasn't been something that I face, but I know like grandparents and great grandparents where like the accusation that Jews killed Jesus was something that individual Jewish people faced on a daily basis in like Christian dominant societies. And so this is like a joke being like, yes, we did it kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's it's making fun of uh, something that people were very, uh, that, that was very, people were sensitive about it a certain time. And many people died because of it as well. Like it's not, it's, 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 a, hor- it ha- it's a horrible history, uh, not to make light of it, but part of, I mean, these people are very, <laughs> they're very hot, heavy on the sarcasm, so... Yeah, so anyway, that is a Jewish ritual that I uh, really like and think and talk about quite a bit, which is the Yom Kippur balls. What about you? What was a, what was a beneficial uh, ritual that you engaged in when you were growing up that is meaningful to you? I actually got a lot of meaning out of um, out of hymns, actually, and it and it's um, singing in church and in my denomination and in many United churches, people still stand up. The way you would imagine people do in uh, 18th century church, where you all stand up and very quietly read from your books. But I found a lot of the hymns really beautiful, and a lot of them have modernized over the years. So it's not, um, thou art my, thou art my comfort God. But I, I, I have found that really meaningful, that hymn singing and standing with a uh, a big group of people in a room and it's taken a lot of forms growing up because I also went to a Christian summer camp and to a retreat center and so we'd be singing together in different spaces it wouldn't just be pews in a room but I I got a lot of meaning out of singing together and the power that that had so uh, I still like doing that. David you were talking about uh, maybe sort of more radical Jewish traditions are you connected to um the Jewish community that you grew up with at all, or? No, I'm very intentionally uh, disconnected. What about you, Sam? Are you are you connected to that community at all, or? I would say probably I'm less. Well, no, that there were going to be too many negatives there. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not particularly connected. I I still spend time with my family during certain holidays, um, but I but I'm not formally engaged as I once was, or as I was until high school, basically. But I suppose your podcast is a, that's a community, the people that are listening to it, that are getting something from it. Yeah. And it's interesting that like the people who listen to the podcast sometimes surprise us. Like uh, we, we, we did this interview, we reached out to uh, this person, Bernie Farber, who used to sort of be the head of the institutional Jewish community in Canada when we were growing up. And and who politically like always was sort of like on the other side <laughs> from like political work that we were both doing when we were younger. And not only did he agree to come on the show and did a great interview, uh, he had listened to the show. And, and <laughs> the, the editor of the Canadian Jewish News, who was sort of like our <laughs> that paper was sort of a big inspiration for why we did the show is because we just sort of took issue with it consistently. And he he listened to every episode, came on the show several times. So. The, the podcast is probably the, the biggest connection that I know I have to that community is because people randomly listen to it. This, this was really, really wonderful. Um, thank you very much, both of you. Oh, uh, thank you. 
Thanks so much. So I knew that Sam and David's takes on Judaism would surprise me, but what I didn't know was just how much. I've always felt that it has more cultural trappings than Christianity. Even though I do have some of my own traditions, like singing hymns in church, I'm still jealous of the fact that someone like David, who totally ditched Judaism as a belief system, has found all these ways to be Jewish that don't involve living out every law. I guess I still can't make peace with the idea that I could be culturally Christian and claim to represent the faith on a podcast if I didn't believe. Every time I deeply question my faith, I feel less like a Christian. What is that? I don't know. Maybe I need to stretch the label a little bit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Congregation, brought to you by HuffPost Canada. I'm Emma Prestwich. If you enjoyed our conversation, subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. 